Hi, welcome to the latest episode of my podcast, which is the audio recording of an interview. The video version is available on Facebook, YouTube, and most of the time on Instagram. My Facebook group is called Donna's Interviews, Reviews and Giveaways, and all the links to everything else are on there. Um, If you want any feedback or if you want to suggest any authors you'd like to see, I'd really appreciate it. Hope you enjoy. Good morning. Today I'm talking to Peter May. Hiya, Peter. Thanks for joining me. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about yourself? Hi, Donna. Um, well, uh, my name's Peter May. I, um, I'm Scottish, as you can probably tell from my accent. Um, but I've lived in France for 20 years. Uh, je parle français, uh, pas uh, um, I started my career as a journalist in the 1970s and then moved into television. I was in, worked in television as a scriptwriter and uh, script editor for nearly 20 years, and finally as a producer. And then I quit TV in 1996 to focus on trying to make a living from writing books, which is a hard thing to do. Um, and um, I guess, uh, I, I mean, I got off to a reasonably good start with a series of books set in China, the China thrillers, six books, um, which were not huge bestsellers. I was kind of mid-list on the publisher's um, rank ranking of um, importance. <laughs> uh, so they didn't put a lot of promotion into the books. Um, and I kind of sc- scraped by, uh, just made a living and no more. Um, augmented that by running writing courses here in France with my wife, who's also a writer. Um, and that h- helped us survive the, the difficult years. Um, and I guess about the mid 2000s, 2004, 2005, I wrote three books um, without a contract, uh, one after the other over two years, and I couldn't get any of them published. Um, and that that was um, a very difficult period. Finances were dwindling, my savings had just about gone. Um, the first of those books uh, was called The Black House, uh, which uh, some years later went on to become a huge international bestseller. But at the time, I could not get it published. The second of those books was called Extraordinary People. It was the first book in the projected Enzo series. Um, and again, I could not get it published. The third was a book called Lockdown, which um, came out for the first time last year. Guess why? Um, because uh, the book set during a pandemic in London um, and uh, <laughs> the real life pandemic suddenly made this book very relevant. So um, that was that was my mid uh, 2000s period of, of um, impoverishment. Uh, but I was lucky enough to find um, an American, small American publisher and a small French publisher who started taking my books, the China books and the Enzo books. And um, so it was France and America that got me through that period. Um, And then it was the French who published uh, The Black House, 
it was published first in French um, uh, and became, they bought world rights, the French publisher, and it became a huge bestseller in France. It won all sorts of awards. They took it to the international marketplace at Frankfurt, the book fair there, um, and sold it all over the world. And finally, finally, the Brits bought it. Um, and, you know, the Black House and the subsequent two books that became the trilogy have now sold something like three million copies just in the UK. <coughs> so um, that's how it went. And that kind of changed my life. That was in the, around about 2009 to 2011, those big changes came. And then and then ever since then, I've been basically all my stuff has, has hit the, the bestsellers chart and um, uh, life has become a little bit more comfortable again. <laughs> um, and did you always want to write um, fiction? Yep. Um, I, I always like to tell the story of how I wrote my first book when I was four. Um, uh, and I did. It was, it was, a, it was an actual book. Um, my, I hadn't even started school. My parents, my father was an English teacher and my parents taught me to read and write at a very, very basic level before I started school. The first thing I did with those very basic tools was write a story. Um, uh, and the torn out pages of a jotter, and it was about six pages long, and um, there were maybe about 10 or 12 words per page, great big scrolls, and, um, and it had a title, it was called The Little Elf, it had two chapters, <clears throat> um, and I, uh, I'd even done a couple of illustrations in it as well um and then my mother showed me how to sew the pages together to like make it a real book and i colored in the front and and i'd written on it i don't know my mum might have showed me or i might have seen it in a book or something it 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 says um something like um printed in scotland and made in england um i i don't know why but it was that that was it and i and i and we still have it i actually um uh, I found it in a in a box in my parents' attic after they died, and um, and I, um, I I scanned them, the pages, and made a little movie. It only lasts about thirty seconds, and you can find it on YouTube um, under I think if you search for Peter May's first story, um, you'll find it. And um, the little elf. So yes, uh, long answer to a short question. <laughs> Um, and what made you finally take the plunge and actually go for it? Yes, um, uh, when I left school, um, sadly I was expelled from school, um, but before I left I consulted the careers advisor because I wanted to be a writer and um, and she laughed when I, I said that's what I wanted to do. There was no career path in those days. Um, there were no creative writing courses at university. So I, I, um, I, I well, because I got kicked out, I, I just took whatever jobs were going and I sold cars and I, I worked for the Department of National Savings, working out interest in bank books and anything to kind of bring in some cash and see what on earth I was going to do. Um, and eventually uh, I went into journalism as a, as a, a means of 
making a living writing, not the kind of writing I wanted to do, but uh, but it was great experience. Eight years I, I spent as a journalist um, and then my time in television, but I always wanted to write books. And um, and I guess it was just frustration. I mean, I'd, I'd had nearly 20 good earning years in television and I'd saved up a good cushion and I thought, well, now's the time. You know, because I, I knew it was going to be hard to make a living writing books. Um, and um, so we just finished making a series of um, in the Gaelic language, which we filmed um, entirely on location on the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland. And um, I, I, I just I, I decided this is it. This is the moment. 1996. Um, I had a bit of savings in the bank and and took the leap. Um, and it's been a roller coaster ride, but uh, well, I'm still here. <laughs> um, your uh, Enzo character has uh, is it heterochromia? What made you um, decide to give him that characteristic or whatever you'd call it? Um, uh, heterochromia. It's um, I think it's um. Oh gosh, I forgot the name of it. It's it's um, something Berg disease. Because um, a will is it will something? Uh, <laughs> I can't even remember these things. I've written I've I've written twenty seven books now, so it, it it all starts to kind of blur into. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's 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 um it's a genetic condition uh, which can have affect people in various ways. But for Enzo, he he's simply affected by uh, this distinctive silver streak through his his generally dark hair, um, uh, which I earned him the nickname of Magpie, um, and it's given him one blue eye and one brown eye. Um, but his uh, his grandson, when his grandson is born, he's picked up the this condition also and uh, suffers from deafness. So it can affect people in in lots of different ways. But it was just um, I don't know quite why I picked some kind of distinctive visual feature like the silver stripe. But when I did research on that, I discovered that. Um, it was, well, uh, Wardenburg syndrome. Wardenburg That's syndrome. It. That's yep. it. Yes. <laughs> it was back to me in the end. Um, so I did my research on that. Yeah, it's just really unusual. I just wondered why. <laughs> but it's cool. I like it. Um, you know, the distinctive streak and stuff is quite a cool mm. characteristic. I guess um, if it ever got made to, into TV, it'd make it quite hard to cast, though, wouldn't it? Well, I think makeup could probably do a fairly <laughs> easy job <laughs> of creating the stripe. <laughs> um, and he has some experience of forensics, so does that mean a lot of research for you? Yeah. Um, forensics um, and pathology are the two kind of major kind of um, medical oblique scientific things that I've had to do a lot of research on over the years. And for the China series, I had a character who was a pathologist, Margaret Campbell, American pathologist. So I had to find a, an advisor on pathology. 
um, which I did a young American pathologist called Dr. Stephen Campman, um, who at that time was um, working in Sacramento in California. He's now medical examiner in San Diego uh, all these many years later. Um, and he became a great friend. And um, he, he also has good extensive knowledge of forensics. Um, uh, but I also, for various other books, for, for the Enzo books, um, I uh, consulted a forensics expert in Scotland. He was the top forensics man in Scotland at the time, um, who just happened to have been at university with my wife. Um, so it was a good contact. Um, when I was doing um, a book called Virtually Dead, which hasn't been published in the UK yet, it, it, it will shortly, um, which, which is set in a virtual world called Second Life, um, and the, but the real world part of it takes place in Southern California. So I, I consulted um, a forensics expert um, in Orange County in California, um, who also became a good mate um, and, and got to uh, do a, a detailed survey of their uh, headquarters uh, in the, the, the city of Orange. Um, and um, yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, um, I, it's my area of interest. I'm actually nearly finished my forensics degree. So, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Um, what's the most interesting thing you found during research? Lots of things that, um, you know, were kind of new to me at the time, which are probably all old hat now. Um, I, I mean, there are always, I mean, Forensics, if you if you delve into it and you you get into the cutting edge of it, um, uh, then that can give you story ideas. Um, I can remember there was um, I was I think it was one of the Enzo books, um, uh, and it was about um, retrieving a fingerprint from a I think it was from a shell casing, um, and normally a fingerprint on a shell casing would be obliterated in the act of firing the gun. Uh, but I, it was a scientist um, somewhere in the, in the Midlands or the north of England um, who had discovered a process uh, by which it was possible because the, the, the acid on the fingertip or the thumb it actually engraves itself into the metal. And he discovered a way of, of using minute metal filings um, to be attracted magnetically to those um, imprints uh, and therefore making it possible to actually retrieve fingerprints from bombs, shell casings, all sorts of things that previously wasn't possible. So I, that was a that was a revelation at the time. I was able to use it in the book. Lots, lots, lots of things. Um, when I researched um, Coffin Road, um, that you you know that was all about bees the disappearance of of bees um the um, colonies being decimated or vanishing um without apparent explanation and and really um getting down to the nitty-gritty with a scientist who'd done a lot of research on it and discovering that actually um 
contrary to the industry's, industry's protestations, uh, uh, the, the bees were being affected by um, a group of herbicides called neonicotinoids. Um, and going into the detail of that was, was fascinating at the time. And you, you discover also that bees are absolutely essential to um, our existence on the planet because they pollinate so much of our food. Uh, and that to, to lose the bee population would be fairly catastrophic. Yes, it would. <laughs> um, when you started writing your Enzo series, we were expecting to have written so many. Um, well, <clears throat> I, to be honest, I, I never really set out um, to write series of books. Um, I, I was more drawn to the, the um, to writing standalones. When I wrote the, the first of the China series, um, the Firemaker. It was only ever intended as a standalone. Um, it was the first book I wrote after I quit television. Um, uh, and I, I was trying to find a publisher for it. And eventually a publisher's editor who was interested in it offered me a two book deal um, if I used the same characters in the same location for the second book. Um, and, and that's how that first book turned into a series, which and year after year, the publisher said more China, more China. So it was a kind of accidental series. Um, the the, the um, Black House was only ever intended as a standalone book. And it was my French publisher who persuaded, she tried to persuade me that I should write a series. Um, and I, I said, I don't, I don't think uh, it would be feasible to write a long-running crime series set on the Isle of Lewis because the average murder rate on the Isle of Lewis is one per century. So uh, it might be a little difficult, um, but she eventually persuaded me that I should write a trilogy. So that's how the other two books came about. Um, the Enzo series, on the other hand, was something I planned right from the outset. So I, I actually sat down and I worked on the character and the concept of the series. And then I worked out roughly six plots, seven plots, um, and, and, and my whole cast of characters and my story threads. Um, and um, I had a big, big document. I use a, a piece of software called Scrivener. And um, I, I, it was all in there. Um, all mapped out the whole thing, um, so uh, it was. It was. I'd foreseen everything from the start, if you could say. Oh, that's amazing. Um, if you were to be placed into any of your series as a character, which series would you choose? <laughs> this is a, this is a kind of roundabout way of saying to me, "Am I Enzo?" Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> it's also was, another. It's another way of asking you if you have a favourite series without actually asking you as well. So it's a tricksy <laughs> question that asks a few and one. <laughs> well, like I'm always being asked if um, Enzo is me or based on me, um, because you know we were both around fifty when I started writing the thing. We both had ponytails. We both had. Um, a broken first marriage and a dysfunctional relationship with a daughter. Um, <laughs> uh, we liked our food and drink. He loved to cook. I loved to cook. Um, we both played in bands as uh, kids um, and had a love of music. So 
I mean, the parallels are very, very strong, although he's not. I mean, there are many characteristics he have he has that don't belong to me. But um, um, but I guess I am certainly the, the closest. He is the closest to me of any of the characters. So I guess I would have to say Enzo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you were to be a, a character in any of your books, which one would you like to be in? Oh gosh, um, I'm I'm not sure. Well, if I was going to be Enzo, Enzo is, is a bit of an idiot. Um, it keeps getting into <laughs> getting himself stupidly into trouble and um, and having uh, physically endangering escapades that are semi comical, but not comical if you're involved in them. So I'm not sure that I would actually want to be in any of them because. <laughs> You know, he's always getting battered and clattered and falling off things and, uh, and doing silly things. So um, probably none of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and your latest release was The Night Gate. Um, mm. So do you want to tell people a little bit about that if they haven't heard about it? Yeah, I, a lot of people think that... Um, and I think really my publishers kind of erroneously, erroneously put about the idea that it was the last book in the Enzophiles series, because um, it's not, because the Enzophiles series finished with Cast Iron, um, because the whole premise of that was Enzo using new science to solve these famous French cold cases. Uh, there were seven of them, and he did the seven in the six books, and that was the end of it. Um, this is a standalone book in which I brought Enzo out of retirement to be my investigator. Um, it was a book uh, effectively born of the pandemic, of the coronavirus, because the book that I had intended to write last year was going to be set on the Norwegian archipelago of Svalbard. Um, and uh, I'd done a lot of research on that. I developed my story um, and I had booked my research trip, which was to have been made last May. Bought all my cold weather gear, everything. Um, I was really looking forward to it. And then along came coronavirus, of course, and the trip got cancelled. I couldn't write the book without having made the trip. Um, so I was left kind of mid-year uh, floundering around because I still had a a contract to fulfill and an expectation from readers that there would be a new book at the beginning of this year. Um, so I had to come up with something that uh, basically I could, I could write without having to make research trips um, using locations that I already knew. Um, and uh, so the, the book is set in this area of France, largely in this area of France where I live in Southwest. Um, and all many of the locations, well, in fact, all the local locations are places I know very well. Um, uh, so I didn't have to go and do huge research for that. Um, some of the book takes place in Paris. I didn't have to go and do research for that. I know Paris well. Um, uh, I set a sequence of the book in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, uh, which I obviously am intimately acquainted with. So I didn't have to do research for that. Um, and the rest I could do on the internet. The, 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 the thing was finding a story that, that would allow me to do all these things. Um, and um, I, I, I remembered a blog post that I'd made the previous year about um, 
a visit that my wife and I made to an exhibition in the town hall in a, a small town just along the road from here, five minutes away. Um, uh, and it was an exhibition about the evacuation of all the art from the Louvre during the war. Uh, and uh, I had known nothing about this, so it was of interest, but particularly of interest because although the, the, everything was moved initially to chateaus in the Loire Valley, um, following the German invasion, it, it moved further and further south, and they, all the artwork ended up here in this area where I live. Um, most of it went into a chateau just along the road from me, which I know well. I've been going to concerts there for years, um, the Chateau de Montal. Uh, so most of the artwork went in there, including the Mona Lisa. Um, uh, but it, it, I, I was going around the, this um, uh, exhibition and, and looking at all the panels mounted on the wall, and I suddenly spotted this old black and white photograph of um, a double garage with a kind of apartment above it, you know, beneath a kind of mansard-type roof and a very distinctive frontage. And I turned to my wife and said, that's our garage. And she said, it is. And I thought, what on earth is it doing as part of this exhibition? So we read the blurb down the side of it, and uh, it turned out that there were these huge, huge paintings um, in the Louvre, like um, the, the Wedding Feast at Cana by Veronese and um, the Coronation of Napoleon by David. I mean, massive, massive things that they couldn't, too big to transport. So they'd taken the canvases out of the frames, rolled them around these long poles, like telegraph poles for transportation. They had to get special vehicles to transport them. When they finally arrived down here, uh, they couldn't get them into the castle because they, they couldn't get the angles in to get round the door and everything. So they requisitioned my garage. Well, it wasn't my garage then, it is now. Um, and they fed, and that's where I'm speaking to you from right now. I'm in that apartment above the garage, which I, because I created my own personal kind of creative workspace here. So the stuff, just, there's a window just to my right, and this, these paintings on their poles were fed through here and laid right along the length, right throughout the door, right to the very back of the building there. Um, so these priceless world famous paintings were occupying the same space that I'm sitting in right now, uh, which gives you a sensation of, you know, almost like touching history. Um, uh, and that had, that, you know, at the time that had tickled me and I'd written a, a blog post about it and I got a terrific reaction from people who'd read it saying, what an amazing tale, that would make a great story for a book. Um, and at the time, I couldn't see what the story for the book would be. Uh, but, uh, but last June, when I was scratching my head trying to come up with something, I went back to that and thought people um, people liked that story and uh, are interested in this background. So I, I put my mind to it and came up with the Night Gate. And the Night Gate takes place on, uh, on two time uh, lines. First one is contemporary um, and is set largely here um, in southwest France where I live, um, uh, and it it um, there's an investigation um, which Enzo becomes involved in into what appear to be two murders. There's there's a murder which has just taken place of a famous.
house actually I know well, village where I first bought my first house in France. Um, uh, and uh, the, the, the discovery of a, um, a, a cadaver um, which has been uprooted by a tree which has fallen during a storm in a park just next door to the house where the art critic has been murdered. And that's a, like a 70-year-old corpse. And there's a, a bullet hole in the skull. Um, and so it's considered that they were probably both murders. Um, and uh, when Enzo starts to investigate, he discovers that there's a link between them two murders 70 years apart, and that link is the Mona Lisa, which thrust us back in time into the 1940s and the, the German occupation of France um, and uh, both Hitler and his deputy, well, it wasn't his deputy, but his, his Reichsmarschal uh, Goering um, independently uh, coveted the Mona Lisa and set um, individual art dealers to go and uh, get it for them. Hitler wanted it for his super museum in Linz that he was planning to uh, build in Austria, his hometown, and Goering wanted it for his private collection. So these two art German art dealers find themselves in competition and conflict with each other in pursuit of the Mona Lisa. Meantime, de Gaulle, based in London, uh, has uh, tasked this young female French art student um, with uh, the task of keeping the Mona Lisa safe from the Germans. Um, so uh, th that, that kind of gives you the kind of scenario and setup for the historical end of the book. Um, and Enzo is in charge of what's going on on the contemporary end. Yeah, it was um, it was very. I, I felt like I learned something, which is unusual for fiction, but it was um, it was very cool. And uh, I like the fact that you included the stories of real people and their real stories, which was a nice thing to read as well at the end. Mm. Yeah, I, it was well. I, it was uh, it was a fascinating um, research journey for me going into all that background and the, the Nazi obsession with art um, and going deeply into the characters of both Hitler and Goering because I, I was writing scenes with them um, and also discovering that there were kind of some unsung heroes of French culture. Um, primarily among them would be um, a lady called Rose Vallande who was um, the curator of a art gallery in Paris called the Jeux de Paume when the Nazis um, occupied the city and they took over her gallery to use as a depository for all the art they were stealing and then shipping back to Germany and she didn't let on that she spoke German and um, listened into all the conversations took meticulous notes of um, <laughs> exactly what art came in when it came in when it went out, where it was sent. So that after the war, she was inducted into the armed services and went to Germany and tracked all this stuff down and actually got most of it back to its rightful owners, um, which was a fantastic story. And I used her in, in it's a, a fairly um, big part, if you like, character in the book. Um, uh, and, and yeah, so the, it's littered the, the, the director of the Louvre, the, the curator who traveled with the paintings and ended up 
selling or not selling, supplying arms to the resistance down here in the southwest when he was supposedly looking after all these priceless works of art. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was it was a voyage of discovery and, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. Um, you've achieved what a lot of authors' big dreams are, getting number one bestsellers and writing full-time. So is there anything, what's your biggest dream now as an author? Retirement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like banging your head against a wall. It's brilliant when it stops. Um, uh, <clears throat> no, no, I don't, I mean, I guess... I've had a very um, checkered career over the years doing all the various things that I've done. Um, and uh, I've had good earning years and, and really bad earning years. Um, and bad earning years are, are, are the hardest to get through because you've no idea whether it's going to turn up um, or, or, or whether you're going to sink without trace. Um, or you can look back on them and say, "Yes, we had we had we had good times in our impoverished days." Um, I learned to cook because we could no longer afford to eat out, um, and I missed, you know, like my um, Chinese meals or uh, Indian food. And so I learned to cook these things at home, which you can do very cheaply. Um, and uh, I can remember even you know, walking from one length of the this road called Bars Road in the West End of Glasgow to the other, which must be about a mile and a half, two miles, uh, just to get um, potatoes at, at two pence a pound cheaper. Because um, we were, I think at that time, we were living and we were budgeting to live on 40 pounds a week. Um, and that was really hard going. Um, so, I mean, success came. It, in terms of the book writing quite late um uh i don't i don't touch wood have uh, any financial worries anymore um uh but i'm not you know i i i don't know what there is kind of left to do except um enjoy some downtime i've had i've written well, about 24, 25 books in the last 20 years. Um, uh, so it's it's been quite a prodigious output and um, at, at times very stressful. Um, stressful when you, there's no money coming in, you haven't got a contract to write this book because it takes a long time to write a book and you're having to self-finance the, the research. I'm going to China, for example, I had to pay for all these trips. So it just ate up about a third of my advance on these books so um uh yeah i don't i don't know um no i'm 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 just i'm just happy to take some downtime now to step back a bit and have a rest and read for pleasure instead of for research um and certainly this summer hopefully relax in the sunshine um get my vaccination my first vaccination next week um second one about three weeks after that um and and hopefully life will start to return to normal thereafter let's hope um uh but you know as far as more books are concerned i i'm i'm not rushing to write another uh i'm gonna wait and see um 
what inspiration strikes me, if any, uh, I always say that, you know, you have to go to the well of inspiration every time you want to write a new book. And I feel like I've probably been there too often that I need to step back and let it refill a bit before I go back to it again. So what do you like to do when you're not writing? Make music. I'm, I'm sitting right now in my, in my recording studio. This is a control room. Um, you can't see it, but I've got a big mixing desk in front of me and three screens. And beyond that, there's a window into the recording room. It's all acoustically treated. So I write and record music. I've got friends that come in and play various instruments for me. Um, I play a few myself. You can see some guitars and keyboards and things in the background. Um, so this has been this has been the big bonus for me of, of success in that I've been able to put together this modest little studio where I can indulge my love of of um, music because I you know I I played in bands since I was I think eleven years old, um, and so that's been a lifelong uh, love for me and um, I'm finally getting the chance to sit back and just take my time and, and, and indulge myself in some music. Um, what's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? <laughs> oh, I don't know, millions of embarrassing things. Um, <clears throat> what's the most embarrassing thing? Well, I, I, I do remember um, when I was in Shanghai researching one of the books, um, I, I had um, I'd been given contacts with the um, Shanghai Police Department, and they'd initially been quite suspicious of me. But I'd actually I'd hired this um, girl to be my translator, and she was a very attractive young woman, um, uh, which was which was a, a a stroke of genius on my part because the cops fell in love with her, um, so you know uh she just charmed the pants off them and they, they you know so whatever i wanted i got because she was asking for it i was asking through her and um and we ended up uh on on the last night in shanghai and uh they held a big banquet for me uh in this building in downtown shanghai and um uh they they have this <laughs> they have this thing that um, where you have the, the, this shot glasses full of a, of a pretty vile liqueur um, uh, that they call Maotai. And, um, and they have a toast, which is gambe, which means bottoms up, literally. So when they, when they fill your glass with this stuff uh, and they go gambe, you have to knock it back in the winner. And it's lethal stuff. But what they were doing around this table, because they don't really drink wine, very much in China, it's beer they drink and Tsingtao and, and stuff like that. Um, so it was beer we were drinking around the table. And they, they would be watching for when my glass got filled up again with beer. And then one of them would, would stand up to make a toast in my honour. Uh, and they would all go, Gambe! And I would have to empty the glass in, in one. Um, and, I, I, and they were trying to get me drunk, basically. Um, but the, the, the thing is that, you know, Chinese are generally quite small.
So the Chinese police were trying to get me drunk by filling me with too much beer. Um, but being quite a big guy and them being kind of small guys, um, I had a much greater capacity for the alcohol than they did. Um, so they were all staggering about by the end of it. And, and I was okay. Uh, my, my only problem was that um, <laughs> uh, when you drink that much beer, um, there's a tendency to need to rush off to the loo. Uh, and... Um, I ended up in a in a police car with the translator um, going back to my hotel. Um, I had still had to pay the translator, um, and she and the the cop who's driving the car um, really had a thing going, and they were going off together afterwards. Uh, and I was sitting in the back of the car, and I was desperate for the loo. I, I mean, I was just at one point when they stopped at traffic lights, I, I was con contemplating leaping out and relieving myself on the pavement. Uh, I'd probably been arrested on the spot, but it was really desperate. So we, we finally got to the hotel and I got out the car and um, she got out the car and I had the, I had her money in an envelope and I just thrust it in her hand and said, thank you very much, bye-bye, and ran <laughs> into the hotel, searched for the nearest loo. Um, so that that was that was um, embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, alcohol is just bad, isn't it? In mm -hmm. more ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, at least they failed in their mission to get you too drunk, I suppose, while they were falling about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you were stranded on a desert island, what three things would you want with you? Um, my wife. Um, uh, a computer with access to the internet. Um, and uh, a stack of good books. Uh, <laughs> awesome. And what would your wife say your worst habit is? Not listening to her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm my, my head my head's always full of stuff, so I, I'm I'm very inattentive. You know, she can be sat, talk talking away to me, and and I suddenly realise that she's speaking. And um, she said, "You haven't been listening to a word I've said, have you?" Of course I have. What did I just say? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, probably. <laughs> Probably not listening. <laughs> I thought that was just a man thing. Uh, it probably is. <laughs> well, um, women are better. Women are better at multitasking, so they can probably have their own private thoughts going on, but still listen to you while you're talking to. <laughs> well, we say we can, not necessarily always the case. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> okay, good. I'm relieved to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're just better liars, I think, or we can cover it better. <laughs> um, so what is coming next for you? Um, really as little as possible. Um, uh, I'm definitely going to spend the summer uh, sitting around the swimming pool, reading, um, in the studio, playing and recording music, um, uh, and... If um, the 
pandemic allows, um, hopefully after all the vaccinations have been done, um, I can uh, go back to the Hebrides because um, I, I generally get there every year, but I haven't been for, uh, I don't know, two years now. So um, I miss that uh, a lot. So yeah, it's just catching up on all these uh, relaxing things. <laughs> Sounds like bliss. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think I have any more questions for you, unless you think there's anything that I haven't asked that you wanted to tell us. No, I don't think so. I've, you've, you've grilled me pretty well over the last hour, um, in spite <laughs> of a couple of um, internet dropouts. Um, I think that might have been at my end. I don't know why, because my internet is normally very stable. I've got high-speed fibre here, so... Um, but anyway, it happens. We got there. Yeah, it's fine. Yes. <laughs> Um, so before we go, do you just want to tell everyone where they can find you and where they can find your books? Where they can find me? Yeah, well, find more about you, I suppose, not actually oh, right. find you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I have a couple of websites, um, www.petermay.co.uk, uh, which is... It, it dates back to the very first website that I created about 1995-96 when the internet was really in its infancy and all that stuff's still there so it's like it's almost like if you you can troll through it and it's like a historical record of of my time as a as a writer um uh, my wife took over management of it uh, some time ago um and so it presents a a more glossy face than it did when I was doing it um <laughs> There's also a um, website, um, which is maypeter.com, which um, really was my blog site, but it's it, but there's a lot of information out there and a lot of blogs that I've written about um, the books and the research and the places I've been. Um, so those are probably the two go-to places. Um, there's quite a lot about me on Wikipedia as well, I think. Um, but people keep going in and changing things and that they you know, are weird but um so it's not necessarily to be trusted uh <coughs> um and what was it what else where to find a, your books which is probably everywhere i would maybe. imagine <laughs> oh um well yeah i mean the high street in britain's shut at the moment still isn't it bookshops are still shut. monday i think monday we're free ish um well it's terrible you know in france that it there was a huge debate about that and bookshops ended up being made um priority uh so um you know, they weren't regarded as non-essential. They were regarded as essential. There are literally thousands of bookshops all over France, thousands. Um, in Paris, there's they, they say there's a bookshop for every 800 people, um, which yeah. is extraordinary. Um, so, uh, yeah, when the, when the high street reopens, uh, any of the bookshops, uh, failing that, the internet, Amazon, um uh, whether you like uh, hard copies or whether you like Kindle, um, audio books um, are great. Um, I'm a great fan of audio books, and it's a, um, an actor called Peter Forbes who reads all my books, um, and I think he's terrific. So um, they're all available on Audible. Um, uh, so yeah, they're, they're pretty much everywhere. 
Awesome. Thank you very much. Very welcome. Thanks for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember that you can view the video on my Facebook page, Donna's Interviews, Reviews and Giveaways, or you can also review the video on YouTube. Um, just search for my name, uh, Donna Morfitt. Uh, surname's M-O-R-F-E-T-T, and you should be able to find it quite easily. Um, if you want any people to be interviewed, then please let me know, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you.